Well, I think it's safe to say that a lot has happened this year, both geopolitically as well as specifically for us as a church. And I just want to take a few seconds to remind you of a few of the things that have happened this past year. Ukraine and Russia began the year at war and they end the year still at war. There was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake on the Turkey-Syria border, followed by another earthquake about seven and a half hours later that killed more than 59,000 people in Turkey and 8,000 in Syria. It also left tens of thousands of people stuck under the rubble. India became the first country in the world to land a lunar rover on the south pole of the moon and only the fourth country ever to reach the moon. There were a series of earthquakes in Afghanistan that killed some 2,400 people with thousands of people buried under rubble. India passed China as the most populous country in the world. Hollywood writers went on strike. That may be a good or bad thing, depending on your view. King Charles III was crowned king. Henry Kissinger died. Hamas and Israel went to war. Earlier this month, there was a 6.2 magnitude earthquake that killed over 130 people in China. There were incredible advancements in artificial intelligence. Taylor Swift was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. (laughs) In our church specifically, we've updated the sound system. Stephen retired after 35 years of service. We fixed the dry rot in the office and rebuilt the office. Celebrated one year of the church having deacons. Les was voted in as pastor. We redid the green room. We fixed the dry rot in the green room. Stephen Murphy passed away. Now perhaps some of these things we could have seen at the beginning of the year, but most of the events that happened in the world and some which happened in the church caught us off guard. There's, there's no way we could have foreseen it. And so as we stand here on the edge of 2024, looking out into the fog of the future, we recognize that we are blind to what even the next hour holds for us and for the world. And yet there are no shortages of other blind people prognosticating the horrors that will emerge from the fog. In an article from the UN Foundation from two weeks ago, the authors wrote of the impending instability that awaits us in the coming year. This is what they write. Quote, the new year begins against a backdrop of unprecedented devastation, division, and instability as 27 regions experience massive violence and political insecurity. Meanwhile, people's rights are in jeopardy worldwide from threats old and new. At the same time, the year ahead provides meaningful opportunities for progress, whether at the ballot box or within a multilateral system. Likewise, our good friends at the World Economic Forum wrote earlier this month about what lies ahead for the world in 2024. This is what they say. Quote, the world faces a multitude of interconnected crises a spiraling climate emergency, and the collapse of a natural ecosystems, increased fragility and lack of trust in the global order, an uneven economic recovery, geopolitical instability and conflict. 
Other threats also lurk on the horizon, such as the profound societal disruption from rapidly evolving artificial intelligence and evolved health risks from growing antimicrobial resistance and climate climate change triggers. Well, every year, you have these new prophets of doom. Usually, those same prophets are the ones telling you that if you follow them, if you allow them to lead the world, then they can help us all avoid the catastrophes that they have foreseen. But whether we hear of rumors of wars, coming disease, the passing of hate speech laws, the light that comforts us and guides us through the unknown of the thick fog can never be found in any human, any agency, any corporation, any forum, or any government. When it comes to the future, they are the blind leading the blind. So where does our hope, our our light, our fearlessness for the future come from? About a week before Stephen passed away, Les and I went to visit him in the hospital and As we were getting ready to leave, he asked if he could pray, and I will never forget that moment because he prayed, help the church to know that God is in control. That's exactly what I want to remind you of today. The diviners of this age can say all that they want about this coming year. Some of it may come to pass, some of it may not. Our anchor for this coming year is the same as it was this past year. Yahweh, our covenantally faithful God, is absolutely sovereign over his creation. And before I give you several reasons how believing and trusting in God's sovereignty prepares you for boldly walking into the future, let's define what we mean when when we say that God is sovereign. Let me give you a few definitions here. Dr. John Frame describes God's sovereignty this way. He writes, quote, the sovereignty of God is the fact that he is the Lord over creation. As sovereign, he exercises his rule. This rule is exercised through God's authority as king, his control over all things, and his presence with his covenantal people and throughout his creation. So he is king, he rules. John Piper describes God's sovereignty this way. He says, quote, When we say God is sovereign, we mean he is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. So what Piper is saying is that which makes God God is that he will do whatever he wants and no power on earth can stop him. Let me give you one more. This is from... A.W. Pink, Arthur W. Pink, a a British theologian from the early 20th century, his definition of sovereignty goes like this. We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. 
To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as, he, as pleaseth him best. To say that God, God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. So to speak of God as sovereign is to speak of him as God. If the expanse of his power and authority does not range from quarks which make up protons and neutrons to the billions and billions of galaxies that, that comprise the universe and then everything in between, then he is not God. But he is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he speaks, there is none that can stop him. There is none who can stand in his way. In Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the God that you serve. Who will stop his purpose? No one. In Daniel 4.35, we read, He, that is God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And so there is, there is no human on earth, and there's no spiritual being among the armies of the unseen realm that can stop him. And so as we look to next year, our hope, our, our comfort, our encouragement is rooted in the fact that God is still on his throne. That doesn't mean there won't be trials. That doesn't mean there won't be suffering. That doesn't mean there won't be persecution. What it means is that we can trust that God is working all things out to a specific end, which is our good and his glory. And so for today, I want us to dwell upon for just a brief period of time, three areas that God is sovereign over. First, we begin with nature. In a country where it seems to either be raining or about to rain, we must still remember that it is God that brings the rain. And not a single raindrop falls outside of the path that God declares it to go. In Psalm 135, 6-7, the psalmist writes, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. In Jeremiah 5, 22, God says to Judah, For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. Did you hear there that it's God's eternal decree? God's eternal decree. The waves have no authority to move past their boundaries because God has eternally decreed it. He set the boundary of the waves 
and they cannot be moved. In Matthew 8, Jesus is, is on the, the boat and his disciples get in with him and Jesus finds this nice place to lie down and he falls asleep and the other disciples are, are standing around waiting to get to the other side when this great storm comes upon them in the middle of the, of the sea and the waves are crashing and the wind is, is tossing them around. The disciples are terrified and so they run to Jesus. They wake him up and they, they say, save us, we're, we're perishing here, do something, save us. Now, I don't know what they were expecting him to do because when Jesus actually does something, they're, they're amazed and they're, they're terrified. And so Jesus turns to them. He says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then he gets up and he rebukes the winds and the sea. And Matthew says, and there was great calm. And they were both amazed and terrified at that. And they say, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That's why the Lord can use the imagery of crashing waves over our lives to say, don't worry about this coming year. I have authority over those waves which loom over you and I will be there with you. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah 43 too. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am Yahweh, your God. So he has all sovereignty, he has all control, he has all authority even over the waters, over the wind or the very rain that was falling this morning. Second, God is sovereign over the nations of this earth. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, we read, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. The strongest nation in the world is nothing before God. Not only are they unable to withstand his power and might, but the Lord uses nations as instruments of his judgment. In Isaiah 10, the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah against Israel who has turned their back on the Lord. They have trusted in, in lesser gods. They have delighted in lesser glories. And they, they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn back to him, to come back to Yahweh, their God. And so God uses Assyria, this, this brutal and powerful nation. He uses Assyria to bring judgment upon this godless nation. And so in Isaiah 10, 5 to 6 we read, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And so the Lord is sending them. The Lord is sending Assyria. All the battles that will ensue, the captives that will be taken, are because the Lord has sent the Assyrian army for a purpose. But the king of Assyria... The soldiers of Assyria, they are conquering out of the arrogance of their own heart. They themselves are not trusting in the Lord. So what will the Lord do to them? Isaiah 10, 12 to 13 says, 
when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in their eyes. For he says, the king of Assyria, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. And so because of, of the arrogance of the king's heart, he thought he was unstoppable to conquer and destroy. He didn't realize that he was merely the instrument in the hands of an angry God. And when he's done with them, the sword will then turn on them. Don't, don't think that this doesn't happen now. That God can't send an army against a godless nation. Just because you only see politics, just because you only see instability, just because you only see the arrogance and, and the hubris, don't think that the sovereign Lord of heaven is not using all of it to his end. Don't think that God somehow no longer cares about the godlessness of this world as if, as if he's obliged to turn a blind eye because we are somehow more modern and sophisticated than they were back then. The nations of the earth belong to him. And while the rulers of the nations might sit on their thrones or in their offices or meet in Davos to make their plans, the Lord watches and he laughs. He laughs at them. In Psalm 33, 8 to 9, the psalmist writes, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The entire world, every, every nation, every citizen, every leader is to fear Yahweh. We are to stand in awe of him, but the world doesn't. The, the leaders don't. They plot, they plan. But the psalmist then goes on to say in verses 10 to 11, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So the rulers of this world can devise their plans as much as they want, but it will be the Lord's plans that are done in the end. This does not mean that the Lord is going to make it, that nothing bad ever happens to his people. We know that's not true. It hasn't been the case throughout history, and we know it's not the case right now. But our hope is not that next year will be a year of ease and comfort, but that the Lord who sits on the throne of heaven is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We may not immediately see the good. In fact, we may never see the good. All you may see is the trial and the suffering, but God is working it for good. We see this clearly in the life of Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. He's then sold as a slave to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and then lies about it, resulting in Joseph's imprisonment. Then when the, the cupbearer is released from prison, Joseph asks him to remember him and get him out of this prison. But, but what happens? The cupbearer forgets. Where is the good in any of that? 
These chapters, as we read them, go by so fast we don't realize that from the time that Joseph was sold into slavery until the time he was released from prison was somewhere around 13 years. For 13 years, he suffered. He was a slave. He was imprisoned. He was enduring this hardship knowing that he was innocent of any real crime. But then Joseph is released and he comes face to face with his brothers who initially sold him. Now is the time for revenge, right? Now is the time for justice. But instead, Joseph makes one of the most clear statements of God's sovereignty as it relates to men. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph, talking to his brothers, says, As for you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Out of the the evilness of their heart, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They were sinning. They, They were acting out of hate and anger. But in that same action, God was working for good. Note that Joseph doesn't say God used that for good. That's not what he says. God did not look down and think, man, Joseph's brothers are, are really causing some problems right now. I got to see what can I do to fix this mess. That, that's not what he says. It's the same action. His brothers meant evil. In that same action, God meant good. And how I hope that you will not just theoretically understand that God is sovereign. How I hope that you will internalize it love it, cherish it, hold firm to it, so that if in this coming year this hate speech law gets passed and you end up in jail for however long, that you will come out saying what they meant for evil, God meant for good. If you end up paralyzed like Johnny Erickson Tata through all the pain and the suffering, you too, like her, might say, oh, thank you, thank you for this wheelchair. My paralysis has been my greatest mercy. If you are diagnosed with cancer, and five weeks later you're on your deathbed knowing the end is near, you too can pray, God is in control. Listen to these words from Psalm 139, 7 to 12. Psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light uh, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, while these verses speak of omnipresence, of God's omnipresence, they also speak of his sovereignty. For even in the midst of our darkness, it is as bright as day for God, because darkness has no power over him. It has no authority over him. So come what may this year and laws pass or wars started or wars continues or lies propagated or control seized, God is still in control. 
He is sovereign over all. Third and lastly, he is sovereign over your life. He is sovereign over your life. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when when as yet there were none of them. And so God has decreed your days. He has set a time and you will not go a second past that. Job says the same thing in Job 14.5. Since man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Therefore, what do we make of that? Therefore, we don't need to be anxious about what lies ahead of us. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26 to 27, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? The answer is no one. No one. No one can add a single second to their life by worrying or being anxious. We are in God's hands until the day that he has pointed us to be done. And in that moment, we are done. That day might come this year. It might be 30 years from now. We don't know. And so we live for the glory of God while we have the time. Rest in his sovereignty that he is in control. Well, let me end this morning with just a few, a few effects that, that seeing and believing and trusting God's sovereignty ought to have for us as we move into this next year. First, It should focus our hearts and help us to stand in awe of him so that our worship is is true, God-centered worship. We do not worship a God who does his best, who tries to accomplish his will against the power of almighty man. We worship the one who sits on the throne of heaven who holds the heart of the king in his hand, who sits in the heavens and laughs at the kings of the earth as they take counsel together, who decrees, whose decrees is always accomplished, who sets up kings and kingdoms and who destroys kings and kingdoms, who commands the elements of the world and, his, and who is the one who says to you, do not be afraid, I am with you. That is the God that we worship. Second, as I just mentioned a bit ago, we need not be anxious for this coming year. God is sovereign in providing for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Will he not give you what you need? Now, notice I didn't say what you want. He will give you what you need. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty the the powerful hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
That is, a, that is an astonishing verse to me. The omnipotent and sovereign Lord will take your worries. He will take your anxieties. He will do it and take it upon himself. Why? Because he cares for you. That's an amazing thing. The sovereign Lord of heaven looks upon you and says, don't worry. Throw it all on my shoulders. I will carry it because I care for you. Third, you can live this next year fearlessly. You can live this year fearlessly. What mouse is afraid of a cat when there is a lion standing behind them? If God is for you, who can be against you? Fourth, you can be confident that God's word will not fail. If God has said it will happen, and if he is all-powerful, and if he is sovereign over all things that come to pass, then you can be certain that what he has said will be so. Fifth and lastly, and remember this one well in light of all of the political upheaval amidst all of the propaganda, amidst all of the concern over radical laws. Remember this one well. In the end, God wins. He triumphs. Isaiah 40, 15 to 17 says this, Behold, the nations... You look out and see the nations and what's going on, you think, there's just chaos around here. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffer for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The nations of this world are like the dirt under your shoes that you walk on every day to God. What appears to us to be momentary victory for evil rulers and nations is merely the Lord using them to bring about his final triumph. And so I would have you remember, dear church, as this new year begins tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow remember those words of Pastor Stephen, God is in control. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would grip our hearts with the magnitude of your sovereignty. Help us not just to think about it intellectually. Help us not to just think about this theoretically, but help us to live in it so that whatever comes our way, we are assured that you are working it all out for our good and your glory. That even when we cannot see the good, 
even if it is years, decades of suffering and trials, and we don't know why, we can be like Joseph in the end and say, what they meant for evil, we know that you meant for good. Help us, Lord, to to understand this. Help us to worship you in light of this. To recognize that our God is not just a man, an exalted man. Our God is the one who speaks into nothing and so powerful is his word that things are created. The mere speaking demands obedience. That is our God. Help us not to be swayed by political pundits or articles or leaders of whatever nation because they are as nothing before you. Help us to know that Christ is king, that he is ruling and reigning, and one day he will come back and every knee will bow. Every ruler of this world right now who thinks the power is theirs will find that they are on their knees. Help us to think about these things in this coming year. Help us to be prepared for this coming year, whatever may come. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.